Imagine building an organization that provides not just for you and your family, but for the families of hundreds more. A brand recognized as a leader in your field. Why is it that some leaders are able to inspire a team and have a profound impact on our world, while others attempt to beat their teams into submission through micromanagement and managers who, regardless of title, are not leaders, costing their business to lose great talents and resources through attrition and toxic culture, ultimately running a great brand right into the ground? There is something else at play here, and we want to know why. It's your brand. Protect it. Protect it from both the outside and inside of your organization. Welcome to Brandology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Mosier, alongside co-host David Morrow. We explore great leaders, great brands, and the reasons why they succeed. We also take a look at stories of toxic cultures and the fall of some iconic brands. We'll play brand trivia and interview some of the leading entrepreneurs in today's business world. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the episode, and please don't forget to subscribe and follow. Let's begin. So welcome, everyone, to Brandology Podcast. Your host, David Morrow. Uh, Co-host, Mark Mosher, is in our mobile studio over on a golf course in Indianapolis. Mark, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Thank you, David. Great, great. How's your golfing going today? Absolutely horrible, but the sun is out. That is great. That's that's fantastic. Which is which is always a good thing when it comes to golf. We are going to um, uh, proceed to our brand culture trivia game, and uh, we're going to play the introduction, and then we're going to get right into the questions. So we'll start with that, and then we will get to our interview of Michelle Falcon, uh, a phenomenal brand leader, and we will uh, begin that right now. Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome everyone to Brand Culture Trivia, where the points don't matter, but the brand does. In this segment, we play a trivia game against our guest. I'm your host, Mark Mosier, along with my co-host, David Morrow. David, tell us about the rules and the awesome prizes. Absolutely. The rules are as follows. You get to guess as fast as you can. You get as many answers as you want. And the first one to give the right answer wins a point. The first contestant to three points wins the game. What do you get if you win? Glad you asked. You get 14,684 Brandology bucks. What is is that worth? Those are absolutely worthless. But we might send you a sticker for playing. So let's get started with brand culture trivia. David, why don't you spin the wheel of trivia and see what our first question is? All right, here I go. It is a heavy, heavy wheel. So, okay, question number one for brand culture trivia. Are you ready, Michelle? I'm ready. Are you ready, Mark? I am ready. Okay, I want you guys to answer as fast as you can. The best answer that you guys can have. Are you guys ready? Ready to go. All right. Ready to go. Here it is. What was the color of the original iPod? What was the color of the original iPod? Silver. Rose gold. Nope. Nope. Uh, What was the color of the original iPod? Graphite gray. Nope. Come on. Yellow. Nope. Not yellow, Mark. Great guess, because there's a lot of yellow iPods walking around. <laughs> I'm an Android guy. I wouldn't know. <laughs> the original iPod. The original iPod. It sat there in our pockets. White. It sat there. looking there. All right. I'm going to call it. I'm going to hold on to that point. I'm going to put it over in our studios. We're going to put it up on the shelf. The original color of the original iPod was white. Was white. Okay, next question. Uh, it's okay. Next question, next question. What does the Q in Q-tips stand for? What does the Q in Q-tips stand for? Uh, quiet. No, good guess. Quality? Yes, congratulations, Michelle. That's, that's fantastic. Great job. I may have to contest Quality that. Tips. Is it really? That's what it means. Yeah, that's what it stands for. Oh, wow. It's good branding. That's good. Fantastic. So Michelle has one. Mark in our mobile studios 
has zero. Okay, what rental company went out of business but at one time had over 9,000 locations in the United States? What? Kirk. Nope. Good guess. Enterprise. Nope, it's not a car rental company. It's an Budget. entertainment. It's an entertainment rental company. Entertainment rental company. Define that. Uh, they would like. Rent, what are they renting? They would rent things that we would use for entertainment, for home entertainment. GameStop. What was it? Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Correct. Who guessed that? Was that my, Michelle? Yeah. Congratulations, Michelle. You have two points. Two huge points. The score is two to nothing. Two to zero. Mark, you have zero. You got to at least get one along the way. It's on okay. the line. What is Merchandise 7X? Merchandise 7X. It's the secret ingredient in what soft drink? Merchandise 7X. That's the secret ingredient in what soft drink? Tab. No. Keep going. Keep going. Keep guessing. Michelle, give me a guess. Pepsi. Nope. Got it right. Oh, you guys. All right, I'm going to call that one. I'm calling it back. Taking it and putting it back on the shelf. Merchandise 7X is the secret ingredient in Coca-Cola. That is the secret no. ingredient for Coca-Cola. I got so cool. <laughs> Believe it or not, it is. Okay, next question. What mascot was created long ago by the Minnesota Valley Canning Company to promote children to eat vegetables what mascot was created long ago the friendly green giant that's good i'm gonna give it to michelle it's the jolly green giant jolly green giant uh, yeah yeah congratulations michelle we have a winner that is great man well done well done <laughs> thank you so the final score was three to zero. Michelle, you are the proud owner of 14,684 Brandology Bucks. And those are really gonna get you far. We will talk to you offline and, and wire those funds to you. Um, they, are, they are really very, very valuable. Um, Mark, great game. You, you played like a champ, man. It's, it's all about the uh, the size of the fight and the dog, right? Isn't that what they say? Something like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about something with you. But uh, we thank <laughs> yeah, you for your right. participation. So you enjoy the right. uh, mobile studios of the Brandology Mobile Studios and enjoy that golf game, all right? Absolutely. Thank you, Michelle, for playing. Thank you. Have a I'm good round. I'm, I'm actually going to have <laughs> Thank some, you. Good. I'm actually going <laughs> to... I'm actually going to go ahead and have some meaningful dialogue with Michelle now. So, all right, good. Hey, everyone. The Brandology team has a special coming soon, and it's the rise and fall of an iconic international social media platform. At its peak, the website was valued at over $12 billion and had 75,000 new users every day. But within a few short years, it was liquidated and sold for pennies on the dollar. What went wrong? What caused this huge brand to fizzle? It was launched in 2004 and was acquired just a year later for over a half a billion dollars from Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. In fact, for the next three years, it was the largest social media site in the world. In 2006, it surpassed Google as the most visited site in the United States. So where in the world is it? Why is your new band's music not on it? Why do you not have an account on it anymore? Why even is this ridiculous podcast not hosted on it? What happened and why did it happen? Come listen as we explore in this next series, the rise and fall of the iconic social media platform, MySpace. So, so Michelle, tell us about yourself. Tell us, you know, let's, let's, let's get to the heart of the matter and just tell us, you know, what you do for a living and, and, and who you are generally from, from a high level. Yeah, I am an entrepreneur, uh, said quite simply. I am, that is the easiest thing, way to describe what I do. Um, but I, I'm an entrepreneur in uh, 
perhaps a more uh, unique way in that I grow businesses through something that I refer to as the people first culture. Uh, and the people first culture is building a, a business that is admired by employees, your customers, and the communities that you operate your businesses within. And I leverage customer experience, employee engagement, and company culture strategies to be able to achieve that. So while some organizations will say that they have a, a great commitment to culture and, and customers and employees, it's easier said than done. It really has to become a part of the DNA of the company. And within my businesses in hospitality and in restaurants, uh, and that is what helps us grow. So in, uh, in the plainest form, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, but I just grow them through people and I happen to be in hospitality and food. Okay. So tell us, give us some examples, like let us know kind of what it is, like give us a success story. Like when you say you're an entrepreneur and you grow these businesses through people, give us an example. What does that mean? Well, most recently with our uh, full service restaurants in Toronto, we went from zero dollars in revenue and zero employees to uh, 15 million in revenue and uh, closer toward 200 employees in, in a two year period. So that was very uh, fast growth in a short period of time. And we were able to do that by having systems and processes which help build our culture and onboard employees in a memorable way, which then leads to a great customer experience because our employees actually want to work with us and be in the environment that we've created for them. And the outcome is a great experience for our customers because our team is engaged. Um, so we okay, so you just had brought up growth. a great point. So let me interrupt you there. You just brought up a great point. When you talk about culture and you said, because people want to work with you, we philosophically believe that people do business with people who believe what they believe and that to get employees to work and work passionately for you, you cannot micromanage. You cannot create a toxic work environment. You have to inspire them. You have to create a healthy culture. How are you defining that successful culture? Oh, meaning, well, what did you I do? You meaning, been... meaning, what what did you do to create people to build that? I mean, you went from a startup restaurant in food service business to two hundred million dollars or two hundred people and several million dollars okay. within two years. How did you do that? What yeah. culture? What culture got them to work late hours and to do all of that work based on your word? What is it? Yeah, it's not just one culture. It's a culture of uh, inclusion. It's a culture of learning. It's a culture of gratitude. Uh, and, and really at the core of it, it is the people first culture, um, which I coined and, and wrote a book about in 2018. And having an environment that people don't just come to because they need a paycheck. Companies can survive when their employees are there for nothing more than just a paycheck. They can, but it's not a culture that is going to genuinely retain people. It's not a culture where uh, people will be advocates of. Like the, the best way to get customers to come back is for your employees to actually love your business and tell perspective customers to come do business with you and they will and that's just known as having advocates but when we talk about having advocates often we we talk about customer advocates but you can't achieve that unless you have employee advocates first and your employees aren't going to run home and tell their family members and friends like hey my boss paid me on time right that's the bare minimum Right, but like, my boss respects me. My boss gives me autonomy. My boss asked me to attend a meeting because he or she wanted to know what my opinion was on our strategic plan. 
That's exactly right. That's what really drives people. That's exactly right. And right? when you talk and, about people first culture, whenever I hear, when, whenever I hear CEOs or C-suite people saying, well, our customers are number one to us, right? Okay, so your employees are number two? Like that's, that's, yeah. a, recipe for, that's a recipe for disaster, right? That won't work. You have to take care because, because as the C-suite, you're not in front of customers. You are not in the field. You are in charge of the people who are in front of customers, right? And so to have a people first culture, doesn't that mean, and let's talk about your book, doesn't that mean you have to put your people first and make sure that it's a, it's a, it's not a top down culture. It's a, it's a bottom up culture, right? The, the leaders at the very top are at the very bottom because they're there to support those above them. And then operations and finance and everything else are there to support the people above them. And at the top are the people that are actually in front of the clients. And actually- Yeah, let me unpack that. And my book, uh, for for a millisecond, I was about to name my book, Customer First Culture. Um, And I literally thought of that for a millisecond. I I, I said, I actually don't, I don't agree with that. Right. I'm have. glad you didn't. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you didn't. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I'll never. I'll say something contrarian, but like, I actually don't focus that much on customer initiatives. Right. Um I spend. I have an eighty twenty rule with uh, our management team. It's eighty percent of your time has to be focused on the employee and the culture. The other twenty percent of the time, focus on designing uh, processes to ensure that we have. Um, good systems in place to deliver a great customer experience to our customers because, you know, it, it truly like our employees are number one. And then one A is customers. One B is our community. One C is our suppliers. One D is our investors. And they're, they're just below them. And I will say that, like, it's like, I don't have, let me put it this way. If I lost one customer today, for whichever reason, the show will go on. Right. Right. Well, exactly. I'll be able to replace. I'll be able to replace that customer. Right. Yeah. Um, let's say, and when I say, if I lost a customer, I mean I fired the customer because they were rude. They were disrespectful to our employees, and I'm fine. I've I have fired many customers in my career, and and. I, again, this might sound contrarian, but I kind of like it. And, I'll, and, and the yeah. reason why is because when a customer is belittles our team members or undermines them or doesn't make them feel good for whatever reason, because they're entitled, let's say. Um, and in my world, that might be a guest coming in and says, I'm a regular, give me a table now. I, I don't care. Give it to me now. And it's just that sense of entitlement. I will ask, I will tell the customer, this isn't a place for you anymore. Right. And it, it feels good because I know that the employee has witnessed me defend them and their, and their efforts. Because yeah. if I lose a customer, no problem. I'll go replace it. It's a lot easier to replace a customer than it is to replace a loyal, highly engaged team member. Right. And that's for me, is why the employee comes first, but it expands beyond that. Like people is all encompassing of, again, investors, our suppliers as well too. Um, I once witnessed something and I, I regret to have seen it in my business. And um, I had to remind this individual of how we operate, but the story goes, one of our suppliers who we buy alcohol from for our venues, mm-hmm. which is how we make our money. Right. Right. We make money off alcohol, not off food. So um, although we have a fantastic menu, the margin just isn't there on food. So um, there was a conversation that uh, um, our manager was having with our, our alcohol supplier. And there was a debate going on or a disagreement. And uh, I think things got heated. And our manager said, don't forget who pays who. As in, we pay you. You should what roll out the red carpet for us that's not how relationships work and he needed to be reminded that it doesn't matter who pays who it's a culture of respect for everyone not just like we can't treat 
the people who we do business with that, you know, our uniform suppliers, our individuals at the bank who loan us money, our investors, anybody that interacts with our brand should be treated like the guest who buys the $500 bottle of wine. Because that way you're blanketing everyone. You don't, you can't, you're not authentic. You're not genuine. You are not a good business if you only treat your regular customers exceptionally. And I see that with airlines. And then it's the first example that came to mind, right? Like if you are, have status with an airline, it's, you love airline, that airline, you love them. But if you're an, an infrequent flyer, then you get a second level of service, a second hand, you feel like a second class citizen, right? And, and that's, fundamentally wrong not just in business but in humanity like imagine oh. if i only treated wealthy individuals well and i interact with in my personal life but i treat treat the homeless person uh, poorly what type of person am i i'm not a good person right well think, because think, i feel like think about this have you person. ever been on a and and i haven't asked you personal questions so i don't know whether you're married, dating, etc. But have you ever been on a date or been on a business meeting, right? And somebody treats like the wait staff poorly. Yeah, that's a good I cringe. Yeah, that's a good yeah. I cringe. Yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, look, there's one thing. If it's poor service to not give a good tip, and if it's great service to give a great tip, that's different. I'm talking about being belligerent. I'm talking about being arrogant and, and crossing that line where you feel you are above somebody working their tail off in their craft to service you. Like when I've, I've, yeah, I've, yeah, been, in those, I've, I've been in those meetings and I'm, and I, and I literally have looked at them and in the back of my mind said, I will never do business with you. Never. I don't care how today goes. I don't care what you have to offer. I will never do business with you because that is a human element. And that is just like so disrespectful that, why would I want to do business with you? Everything we do is commoditized. I can find 50 of whatever you are, whatever any any of us are. I can find 50 of whatever I am, right? So why would I do business with somebody who doesn't believe the way that I believe, right? If they don't value other humans, they don't value the service and they're going to feel that they're better than somebody for some ridiculous reason because of the money their daddy had or whatever, then why in the world would we want to do business with them? Yeah, on that note about the, you know, how do they treat uh, hospitality team members um, uh, when they're out to dinner, uh, that, that reminded me of a time where uh, I do very little consulting these days. Uh, but when I do, it's because it's a unique case um, in that I'm really uh, attracted to the industry. So, um, you know, dentistry isn't known for great customer experiences. Uh, it's got that negative reputation, which I don't think it, it needs to have. But when this uh, this dentist here in Ontario uh, reached out to me because he was a guest of one of our venues, um, and uh, somehow he got a hold of me and said, "You know, come uh, help me. I want uh, help our practice. I want what you've got going on in your hospitality to happen in dentistry." And I applauded him because I was like, "Good for you for recognizing that you should mm -hmm. be learning from hospitality." A lot of industries can relate to hospitality because, like we live and die based on experiences, right? Um, sure. And one of the things that we did, um, one of the systems I created uh, when it came to finding customer-centric professionals, because I had to rework uh, onboarded team members, because um, shame on any company or any leader who asked their team members to deliver a great customer experience but don't do it to them first so that they understand what that looks and feels like. So one of the things that we did, and this was affordable for, for the, uh, the practice in question, um, when he was hiring, uh, his practice would hire a senior person into the company. So maybe it was a doctor or a hygienist or somebody that uh, um, might stay at the practice for years. Um, what we did was if you, when you were during, uh, just as you were about to uh, hire them and make them an offer, we actually gifted them a stay at a, at a boutique, a nice hotel here uh, to help them understand and 
what it's like to deliver great experiences. So that oh, they that's did. fantastic. But what we also that's fantastic. What we so, also did was yeah, and the employees didn't know that we were um, that we knew a lot of people that worked at the hotel. So not only were we doing that, but we also followed up with the hotel and asked, "How did that person treat you when they checked in? You know, can you give us some notes?" So the offer hadn't been made yet, and if the feedback had come back poor, well, then we would, you know, we would kind of second guess the hire. It's something that we would think about. Um, so if, but if it came back fantastic, then great. We're making this person an offer. It was almost it was at the very end of the whole hiring process. Um, so that's what companies need to do: is in a creative fashion, they need to be able to understand how do people truly behave, not as potential employees or team members, but human beings. Because um, something that was shared to me by the the former president of Starbucks, Howard Bihar. Uh, he actually wrote the the quote on the cover of my book. Um, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Michelle, to be a great leader, you need to wear one hat. You can't come to work and put on your Howard hat. I'm a great person, right? And then go home and put on your home hat. It has to be the same hat. You have to be the same person.、That's、and for a terrible、advice. person, that's great advice, right? And it, it's exhausting because, because it's about it. being authentic. It's about being authentic. Let, let me ask you this: You believe that people can lead from any position, right? Like they can be leaders, regardless of title. Would you agree with that? Meaning, if like there are groups that are middle management, there are groups that are down at the staff level, but they can still be leaders. There are still leaders within that group. Would you agree with that? Oh yes. Hey everyone, Mark and I would like to invite you to listen in on our two bonus episodes, a two-part series on the rise and fall of one of the world's most iconic brands. One man's vision, where he recognizes the baby boom even before it was a term that was used. He grew an international business that was worth billions of dollars. In just a few years, it is liquidated in bankruptcy. It's not what you think. It's not due to e-commerce or anything like Amazon or other large retailers. Come listen and find out. We promise you won't be disappointed when we discuss the rise and fall of Toys R Us. And now back to our episode. What advice do you give to them to speak up and to lead? That's a good question.、Um, first. Um, learn how to communicate. I'll give you an example.、Uh, I started off my career working at a, a franchisor based in Vancouver called One Eight Hundred Got Junk, which is for me the company culture in Canada. And when I was working in the call center, I was a I was a leader within that kind of role. But I didn't know how to communicate properly. I thought shooting from the hip when I was 20 years old was the right thing to communicate because you just cut through and delivered your message. Well, guess what? That's a great way to alienate people.、Um, people don't like people immediately put their guard up when you speak to them. So the first is learn how to deliver a message, right?、Uh, massage your language. Sometimes you need to know who you are speaking to. I have individuals in my life. That I know I can speak to directly, because they have thick skin, or they know、uh, they like being spoken to this way.、Um, but there's other individuals that you kind of need to soften the language a little bit, and I'm okay with that. So the first thing I would do is、um, communicate effectively. Know who you're speaking to, because the message will resonate a lot uh, faster. Uh, the second part to that is ask permission. To speak freely. Now, that's one thing that I think a lot of people miss. Now, if the individual says that preps them to say, "Hey, you know, I want to have a conversation about something that I think could be done better、uh, in in our department. I have evidence. May I speak freely?" That gives that person that you're about to try to convince 
to perhaps change a system or process or you have found a better way of doing something, the ability to say yes or no at that time. You know, is it the right time to be having this conversation? Um, so those are two things that I learned earlier in my career um, that will help you be a leader without the title, but still uh, build a name for yourself within your culture, within the company. And communication, you know, uh, I know a lot of smart people, high intellect people who haven't gotten promoted. And it's because they're not good communicators. Because as you start getting promoted, naturally you, you often find yourself in the leadership role. But no, I've never met a communicator. I would agree with that 100%. I mean, I don't see how anybody is gonna be effective in any role in life, whether it's as a parent or as a yes. business leader, if they cannot communicate what it is that they're doing. And I think sometimes, especially in light of technology and advances that we've seen in technology, we make excuses for people that can't communicate, right? We say, well, they're, they're engineers, so, so just they just can't yeah. communicate. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Like, make them communicate if they want to be heard. Like, if you want to be able to be heard, you need to be able to just express honesty and authenticity. You don't need to be an orator. You don't need to be, you know, JFK or some phenomenal orator, right? But but at least be able to be honest and, and be for, you know, forthcoming with what your desires are. I agree. And for me, kindness is a kindness is becoming cool, if you will. Uh, it's being like I, I you know, I, you I don't mean know political correctness or kindness. Do you mean political correctness or kindness? Kindness. Okay. Political good. correctness. Yes. Like, like just genuine kind people. Now I know some people are cut from a different cloth for whatever reason and uh but i don't think we should be apologetic for them to your point the engineer who is rude and brash like that's great go be rude and brash somewhere right it works with exactly. individuals that we've been on a been on a team with and we're like oh god like i don't like working with this person but they're protected by somebody in the company because they're so talented um and and that's not for me um, they, they, I don't care how good of a coder they are or how great at buying Facebook ads they might be. Um, that, that's fine. I'd go somewhere else. Um, very similar to how um, I, you wouldn't be with a spouse or, or a, a partner um, for just one reason, right? You, you're likely with them for a, a myriad of different reasons. And one of them is because they show you respect, right? And you know, I'm not I'm not a um, psychotherapist, um, nor do I want to spend any time trying to change somebody's DNA. Like, if you're a jerk, you're a jerk, and I'm not going to spend a moment to teach you how to be kind um, or diplomatic or like these are things we're adults, right? Like, I would expect this from a, a child, and and I'm not in the child minding business. Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, the Brandology team has a special coming soon, and it's the rise and fall of an iconic international social media platform. At its peak, the website was valued at over $12 billion and had 75,000 new users every day. But within a few short years, it was liquidated and sold for pennies on the dollar. What went wrong? What caused this huge brand to fizzle? It was launched in 2004 and was acquired just a year later for over a half a billion dollars from Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. In fact, for the next three years, it was the largest social media site in the world. In 2006, it surpassed Google as the most visited site in the United States. So where in the world is it? Why is your new band's music not on it? Why do you not have an account on it anymore? Why even is this ridiculous podcast not hosted on it? What happened and why did it happen? Come listen as we explore in this next series the rise and fall of the iconic social media platform, MySpace.
So let me ask you this. What event or person when you were young inspired you to kind of have this drive? That's a right. Nobody's ever asked you that. Well, um, welcome to Brandon. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so let me give you just a short 30 seconds. Um, in my, I went to business school. I was not a great student. And I don't say that proudly like high school drop or university dropout. That's, that's not the narrative for me. It's just, I recognize that I, I wasn't great at academia. And after a year in business school, year and a half, um, I left and I joined a company called 1-800-GOD-JUNK. If you don't know the business story, just Google it and, and it's great. Um, but I recognize this entrepreneur a true entrepreneur named Brian Scudamore started this company, very popular, lots of revenue, lots of employees. I admire that. So I said, why don't I go work for this company and give myself to my career, work really hard so the company gets value from me. I'm going to learn about entrepreneurship firsthand. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to ask questions. I'll work for free if I have to, uh, You know, aside from the eight hours per day that I was employed by the company, I'll stay out, I'll be helpful and that, 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 that. So for me, I was like, I, I would always say like, I'm getting such a good deal here. I used to pay for education. Now I'm getting paid for education, right? So, um, and in five years I got promoted five times. Um, and I've, I, I proudly, um, say that I've, I've built a reputation of, of being a hard worker and, and getting things done that I, uh, when I say I'm going to do it. And where does that come from? Um, that is a DNA thing. And who has inspired me? There's no single one person. There's not one person. Like I got inspiration from Brian Scudamore during my twenties. Um, today I get inspiration from, you know, athletes like Kobe Bryant or other entrepreneurs like Howard Schultz. Um, uh, the, the woman that founded uh, founded uh, a company called Glossier, the direct to consumer makeup company, Emily Weiss. I find like you know it's not you know I do find that it's often a business person or an athlete um, that I find inspiration from. But you know why I do any of this uh, really comes down to one person. It's my mother, um, who had every reason to give up on me because I wasn't a great teenager right I, I but ah uh, Michelle you know, join, the, that, join, the, join the ranks of us rebellious <laughs> none of us I, none, yeah. none of us really deserve our parents sometimes no, as teenagers I, no. right? none of us do but that's okay that's not it, who we it, are it, that's not who we really are <laughs> I, I will say when it comes to my mother and my my father and my sister, we're all very close. But you know, there's a, a mother-son relationship here um, that is uh, just un unprecedented. But um, you know, to that point, I don't deserve my mother. The planet doesn't deserve my mother because she's an angel on earth. And um, that's like, a good boy. That it, I'm my my mother is the only person that can really truly get me to do anything. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was a great question, and I I'm a student, of, not just of business, but of like life. Like I will one day have to prepare to become a father one day, and um, I already know who I'm going to reach out to for fatherhood advice. Like as other entrepreneur friends, I have already preemptively told like there's going to be a day where I'm going to ask you for some of your time because I want to learn parenting just similar very similar to how I continue to learn business uh, or health um, so the people that I learn from and find inspiration from is ever-changing that's fantastic that's fantastic who are some of your favorite like authors or leaders obviously the uh Brian, I believe his name is the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. What is it? Let's talk about him for a second. What is it about him that created such a good culture? What is it about that? Like, what is the secret sauce there that you saw that you now as an adult can identify? I, um, two things immediately come to mind. Uh, the first thing we've already touched on, but it's worth bringing up again, 
If you go to 1-800-YARD-JOHN's head office in Vancouver, Canada, you are going to see, as soon as you walk in through the front doors, um, you're going to see these large letters deckled on the wall. And it says, it's all about people. And oh, that great. is where I... I love that. And I love that. You know what's so... What, what, let me touch on that for a second. Because what I love about that is Simon Sinek, who I'm a huge follower of, he talks about, you know, 100% of business is about people. If you don't understand people, you don't understand business. People think they understand business because they understand statistics or they understand Excel spreadsheets, right? But that's not business. That's not what it's about. And, and the human element, empathy, leadership, inspiration, motivation, that's what it's really about. And so he's got that emblazoned right when you first walk in. That's remarkable. That's a brand. That is a culture. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, and you know, it's not dissimilar to Howard Schultz and Starbucks and like, sure, debate with me if you like the coffee. But what's undeniable, you can't debate the success of the company. Um, So there's enough case studies you know, I'm in my office right now, and there's a framed uh, picture of Richard Branson, and there's a quote from him that says, "Train people well enough so that so that they can leave. Yes. Treat them well enough so that they don't want to." That's and, exactly right. And, and, That's exactly right. And the and, and, the, that, and the counter to that is is what if we train people up and they leave us? And the response right. to that is, what if we don't and they stay? Yes, exactly. Um, and there's enough case studies already for us to have bought in on this way of business. Now, what I have found is that there are really three reasons why a company won't have a people first culture. And the first is, um, the leader, um, they're not cut from this cloth. They don't have this type of DNA. Um, they're cynical to the thought of, doing some of these initiatives and they see it as fluffy. Uh, the second is they're short-term thinkers. So I will tell you, sake argument. Okay. If you want to build a better culture, but the problem here is you're not onboarding your team members in a fashion, uh, in an exceptional way. Uh, you're not giving them good training and you're doing nothing, um, from kind of a morale perspective. It's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars to fix this. Okay? But you will see a return because employees will have higher productivity, uh, employee retention will go up and many other good things. But but that ROI might not come to surface for 12 to 18 months. And what is the alternative? Right, You could take that $100,000 and spend it on traditional media or Facebook ads and see a return within 24 hours, 48 hours after deploying that program. Some leaders are just too impatient. But how can you force relationship building? You didn't marry the first person that you had a date with, most people at least. Um, So why do we behave any differently in our professional lives or expect things to operate differently? At the end of the day, it has to do with humanity, human behavior, and expectation. Um, So that is, you know, and the third reason why is they don't know how to. Right, go to business school and you're going to learn how to read a P&L. You're going to learn how to create a marketing plan and many other things. Where did The last time I checked, they don't teach you how to create a great culture because the professors themselves have never built a business before. So everything is, is for the most part, and, and everything's theory. So, you know, and, and sometimes leaders are too, um, too uh, prideful to admit that they don't know what to do next. So they just ignore it. Um, and, and going back to the Brian question, what's the other thing that you know really stood out to me? It, it was, it's all about people, but then also just how uh, laid back and calm he is as a leader. Uh, I remember uh, there was that perception that I had that a leader should be in a suit. But, you know, dating back to when I joined the company in 2007, Brian has always been in Chuck Taylor's jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, you know, he 
he I'm I'm certain he could afford a Ferrari. But he drives um I I, I can't remember what car he drives. I think it was a Volvo SUV back in 2012, a nice vehicle, but wrapped in the company colors. Right? Like that's that's like humbleness, modesty. It would come into the call center, take calls himself. And and that's one of the things that when I work with companies or speak on stage at their events, um, you know, one of the things that I say is you have to, you know, to get to know your people, you have to be in the trenches with them. And that, like we've heard this before. We know that this works, right? We've heard the case studies. But yet some leaders aren't willing to do it cuz maybe what? They're too busy. Look, if you can't allocate 1 hour a week, so 1/40 of a working week because you're too busy, I would question whether you are the right person to lead people. Exactly. Let's talk about the difference between leaders and managers just for a second. Okay. What's your view? Um I think when I think leaders I think individuals who are very clear on what their responsibility is and that is to recruit a team, pave a path for them and get out of the way. Now, recruiting the team is, you know, every great leader I have found is a great talent acquisition person. and the reason that they are is cuz they have a reputation of being a great leader and people want to work for great leaders. They okay? um paving the path for them. So making sure that they have the proper training, the right system and processes in place so that there's uh, guardrails so that if they stumble they can pick themselves back up and then get out of their way. So the um you don't need to micromanage. You don't even have to be in the office every single day. Um uh, you allow people to make decisions where it comes to spending money. Uh for example, let's say, you know, uh a team member of yours wanted to do something for a customer and it cost the company $175. Just spend the money, right? Like you know, as long as you have the best the company in mind, if you have the customer in mind, then just go do it. Right? There's nothing great you can't do anything grave enough to bring this company down, right? Because the system and processes in place that's paving the path. Uh, and then get out of their way. Whereas on the manager side when I think of managers, I think of individuals who have misaligned goals. Uh they see themselves as uh gatekeepers to the KPIs, sales targets and so forth, and that's all they think about. whereas hitting your numbers achieving your is an outcome of being a good leader like i i don't like i spend more time speaking to team members than i do looking at our pnl whereas sometimes people will spend more time dissecting the pnl before actually speaking to their team so that's the difference how uh, how i see uh, the, uh, the difference between leaders and, and managers for me That's excellent. I mean, micromanagement is poison to a culture, isn't it? Um, you know what? I actually was thinking about this just yesterday. Yes. Yes. But I think there's actually a time and place for it. However, I wouldn't necessarily position it as micromanagement. Um, what I would say, and I'll give you a real life example. I am about to next week. I am I am uh, creating a, a new marketing initiative for one of my companies. And I want to be a part of it. And I've told the team I'm going to check everything before anything is posted online. I want to review it first. And that might seem like that's micromanagement, but it's not. I just want to be a part of the build initial building process. I will dissect things and I'm going to give feedback. Well, there's um, a difference from between, that. Yeah, but hang on. There isn't there a difference between leadership involvement in tasks and micromanagement? Because to me There is. Right, exactly. And what you're suggesting is leadership involvement in details. 
There's nothing wrong with that. Micromanage. Yes, but it's the perception. It's the yeah, perception class. of the Correct. How we, right. how we explain why we're getting involved. How we explain exactly. the reasons. That's, so again, and you, and it's you have communication. It gets to communicating the mission and the vision of leadership to everybody across the organization. Exactly. And, and that I was, I was getting there and what it's the, you know, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but I'm with the team and on the first kickoff meeting, I'm going to say, guys, just to let you know, I'm going to be overbearing for 30 days. I'm going to be breathing down your neck and I'm going to be dissecting absolutely everything because I want us all to be on the same page. I want us to debate what we, this new campaign, but I, I promise you, if you allow that opportunity and for 30 days after on the 30th first day, I am removed from the process. But if you don't have that conversation before the beginning of the program or the initiative, the perception is going to be micromanaging. Correct. Absolutely. So communication to your point, communication. Yeah, because I'm, I'm of the belief that even if people have to get bad news or there's a project that's going poorly, if they don't know about it until the end and then they find out, oh, shit hit the fan, it was horrible, it was a bad result. But if they're told along the way, we see this challenge, we're, we're addressing it this way. Any input? Nope. Okay. This is how we're going to attack it. And then phase two comes and we're, we're see this challenge and we're addressing it this way. Any input? No, because it's about control. You're giving them insight. You're giving them visibility into the, the Hindenburg explosion, right? And you're letting them know, look, we see this thing is going down, but we're taking these steps. Do you have any input, right? You're asking them for a lifeline. Do you have any input? No. Okay. It's fine. We're the experts, we're going along. As opposed to not being told of anything and then being told at the end, oh, it's end of the world, right? Because this way mm -hmm. they, they have buy-in. And, and like, like anything else, I think a lot of things have to do with control. Micromanagement is about the loss of control. It's about the fact that I don't get to control my day, I don't get to control what I say, I don't get to control what I talk about. None of it. They want a robot, and frankly, why aren't they getting one, right? You know, uh, and, and the whole point is people, especially young workers, who are told that they are special from a young age, and they are told, you know, they are, they're, they're given more freedoms and more trophies and awards than any other generation in history, and then they enter the workforce, and in an instant, they are taught, you are not special. You are worth what you can do and your mommy and daddy cannot save you, right? And micromanaging, I think, is the worst thing for younger generations because we need to trust them. They have vast amounts of talent. They have vast creativity. They have younger, younger generations are digital natives. Right? I mean, they, they have so much ability and so much power and so much creativity that if we trust them, they will surprise us. And, and so I find that organizations, including my own sometimes, there are different departments within my own organization that micromanage some of the younger workers. And I'm like, guys, you can't do that. It's not, it's not gonna, we all want the same results. We all want more sales. We all want more market share. We all want whatever the metric is, right? We all want more of whatever the metric is. But there's a right way and a wrong way of approaching. What I love about your book and what I love about your philosophy is you really talk about trust. It's really about trusting people and letting them go with their gut, letting them have the leeway, and then obviously coaching them along the way if they're not applying the best, best practices, if they're not you know, using industry standards, whatever. You, you guide them, you keep them within the rails, but you let them bounce around and you let them have that freedom. That's brilliant, Michelle. Yeah, I, um, yes, that is what I want. 
because it's it's also good for my own sanity. I don't have to be worrying all the time, right? And if I right. am worrying all the time, then I've made there's either something wrong with me and my leadership person or that team. That team is comprised of people that should have never been hired, right? Um, sometimes it's both. And, you know, there's been times where uh, I have uh, had to kind of do a gut check on myself and my leadership uh, where I'm, I've been with certain individuals. I was like, why do I feel like I'm still so involved after a 30-day period? And I just have to do an audit. Maybe it's a simple conversation with a certain individual on your team. Um, but, uh, you know, for a third time, I guess we'll bring up communication and being kind of crucial to culture and employee management and uh, morale and, and many other things. Um, and ultimately, that will impact um, the customer experience and your brand and then your profitability. And it's just kind of a domino effect. Um, but it's all central to the business. It's all happening within um, the culture. And that's often where you have to look when things aren't going the way you want them to be going in your business or your department, whether it's sales, finance, tech, customer support, or whichever department. That's excellent. That's great. So let me ask you this as we, as we wrap up, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, what is it that, that you wanted to be compared to how you are now? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. And in I, many things, but the one that seems to stand out when I think of that, uh, uh, what comes to mind immediately was in the ninth grade, I wanted to be, um, like a murder investigator. Um, oh, yeah, forensic. And I still. Oh yeah, like a yeah, like, like a detective. We have a, you know what's interesting? Like, we have a lot of people yeah. on here like that. A lot of people on here like that. That's interesting. Well, you know what it is, and I think so. I still love those types of shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still watch them to this day. Like Forty Eight Hours uh, every Saturday, you'll you'll see me watching that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. But Absolutely. um. I think it has to do with curiosity and digging and problem solving, which is very similar to, it's not dissimilar to something in business, right? With a challenge. Okay. Why is this happening? Right. Or in, you know, in, in, in detective, it's like, how, why did this, or how did this happen? Uh, okay. Well, let's come to an end solution. Um, so there was that, um, but I was asked the other day, um, by someone, what would you, if you were to give up your career and start something new, not in entrepreneurship, what would it be? And it'd be a pilot. Um, because I used to be scared of flying, but now because I, I used to travel so much uh, for, for work, um, I'm, I'm fine with that now. But it's just like the responsibility of, fly, of tr- uh, helping three or 400 people go from point A to point B. I really admire that. Um, and it's something that I used to be fearful of. And uh, that's, that's probably what I would be if I was to uh, do it all over again, if you will. That's excellent. Well, hey, Michelle, thank you for your time. This will definitely not be our last discussion. Um, is there anything you, you would like me. to? No, absolutely. You're welcome anytime. Um, thanks so much and, uh, have a great weekend and, uh, we will, uh, we will be in touch definitely soon. Fantastic. Thank you kindly. Thanks. Have a good day. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Hey David, that was another great episode. We tend to post one or two a week. Uh, unfortunately don't really have a way of wrapping this up. No, uh, no, we really don't have anything formal or fancy or technological. Um, thank you for listening. Please follow and subscribe, turn notifications on so that when we post the next episode, you will be notified of the new content. Thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Everyone, thanks for listening. 